I'm Mike Breen, Public Awareness Officer of the American Mathematical Society, and I'm speaking with Patrick Ball, uh, who uses mathematics and statistics to investigate human rights abuses. In part one, we talked about his investigation of events in Kosovo, and now in part two, we'll begin by talking about uh, sifting through the tremendous amount of data that's been discovered from the Guatemalan National Police Archives. I've been working in Guatemala off and on since 1994, and I've worked through a series of processes with a non-government organization and then with the UN-sponsored Truth Commission, and now with the project you just suggested, the National Police Archives. And the, the archives contain what we estimate about 80 million pages of paper, which is a lot of paper. It's four huge warehouses of paper that had been stored in huge sacks, mostly, tied up with strings. And this paper was the archives for the National Police, the police that covered all of urban Guatemala, uh, which is Guatemala City and then the municipal capital, you know, from the period from the late 1890s through the 1996 when the police were disbanded. And they were disbanded in the police process because it was widely recognized that they had been deeply implicated in massive disappearances of political opponents throughout the 70s and 80s, primarily. And so the question was, we approached these archives is, okay, what documents exist in these archives about disappearances? And how can we how can we find those documents without conducting a search that would seem to be in any way politically biased or, or cherry picking? How can we characterize the body of documents, particularly with reference to disappearance? So we've been taking random samples. You have to ensure that they are truly random and Yes, we do have to take them in a truly random process, but it's not unstructured. The statistical term is that they're stratified random samples. So we're taking a random sample but we're taking, in some sense, a random sample from each place in the warehouse or from each kind of document so that we assure that the representation that we get of documents in our samples matches the representation of documents in the archives according to the dimensions that we can stratify along. So we know that we've got a proportion of documents in our sample which matches the proportion of documents in the archives in spatial terms, and in terms of, you know, from each of the four warehouses and each from each room in each of the four warehouses. As the document classification process continues, we can get better and better samples with respect to the types of documents that are there, whether they're daily situation reports or they're personnel records or they are, you know, driver's license applications or, you know, the various other kinds of documents that are in the archive. So from one point of view, the fact that all that information there is good because you can connect things, but from another point of view, there's so much that it's it's not really a nightmare, but it would be, it's hard to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to deal with. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. And, and that's the motivation for taking random samples. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to assure that we're getting a good representation of things in the archive, but it's also a way to get a sense of what's in the archive without having to read everything because you can't read 80 million pages. I mean, that's, that's just not mm-hmm. doable with any kind of finite resources. While you're investigating these cases or, or trying to find information in, in general, do you need new statistics or do you just try to apply the statistics to the new situations? Well, I mean, there's always a lot of tuning that has to happen. So, for example, with our sampling, we worked with several senior advisors from Westat in Washington, D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C., who are experts in, in sampling. And they certainly have helped us think about the application of classical sampling theory. It's, you know, we haven't derived a new sampling theory, but on the other hand, the math that's specific to our application is derived specifically for our application. So there's certainly new thinking that goes into each project, whether it's a capture-recapture project or a sampling project, but it's not, I mean, we're not deriving new fields of statistics by any means. These are extensions and refinements of work that 
goes on in, in normal statistical or demographic or survey stat- statistical research. In one of your interviews, you said it was very important to understand the past so that you hope these things don't happen again. Right. There's a, a lot of different reasons that we want to do this kind of research. Certainly, the, the sort of big picture around historical clarification is giving a society the tools to confront what happened in the past. In particular, what happens when you hand over too much power to a government because the government claims there's a crisis? I mean, that's the kind of classic pattern that leads to massive abuses. You know, the government says, oh, we're in a terrible crisis. We need extraordinary powers in order to confront this crisis. And people agree to, to give the government those powers, and huge abuses almost inevitably result. But there are many other reasons that you want to do this. I mean, you may want to reform a particular institution. You may want to conduct a trial of a particular perpetrator or a small group of perpetrators. Or you may want to change the allocation of assistance, of, of aid. Uh, if you're a donor country giving assistance to another country, you may want to say, well, we're only going to give you this assistance if you make progress in your human rights, improving your human rights situation. So there's a lot of different reasons that you need to have a very clear picture about human rights abuses. And there's a lot at stake. I mean, you, you need to get the story as accurate as is humanly possible. I think that's the role that statistics and mathematical analysis plays, is that it allows us to get the picture excluding subjective influences in the analysis about the choice of documents or the choice of respondents or other things that could politically bias the process. We try to exclude those things with statistical analysis. Is there anything else you'd like to add, either about the statistics you use or about your work in general? I, I think it's really important to tip our hats to at one level to our advisors in the statistical community and in the in the survey community, but more broadly to the, the history of statistics and the history of good data analysis. Every project, it seems, is standing on the shoulders of the giants that have come before, and, and we should always recognize that. But I feel in, in human rights we have a particular debt to our teachers and our predecessors because in our community, legitimacy is very much contested all the time. You know, everybody who opposes your critique will say, hey, what you've done is, is invalid for some reason. And our predecessors and our teachers have done such an important job uh, teaching our societies about the utility and the, the centrality of the scientific method and statistical reasoning and doing good math. Our ability to build on that turns out to be much stronger than we might otherwise expect. And so I think it's incredibly important. The, the legitimacy that the scientific community has built is incredibly important, and it's, it's incredibly important for us to continue protecting that by being modest, by making only the claims which are strictly supported by the data, and by staying, again, as much as humanly possible inside the bounds of the scientific reasoning. That's Patrick Balt, who's Vice President of the Human Rights Program at the Benetech Initiative. Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael.